Good morning, Tristan. Matt, how you doing? Happy Monday, Joe. I guess it's technically not Monday while we're recording. We, we can we can LARP like it's Monday. So right. um, <laughs> welcome, Tristan. <laughs> yeah, what's up? Tristan? Yeah, thanks. Um, I I'm I'm sorry that it's not Monday. Um, I just for backstory for listeners, I uh, was supposed to uh, be here with you folks four days ago, but uh, you would not wanted to, would not have wanted to hear me at that point. I was like <laughs> going to have to hit the mute button and hack and cough and. Uh, uh, my my nose wasn't really working, so it was it was better than we skipped it. Sorry, man. Uh, no, you sound you sound a lot better. Um, yes, I think, yes. I think I gave a presentation once to the military, and I could barely talk the whole time. That oh was, yeah, uh, that that sucked. That was not good. She's like, we can't hear you. I'm like, I know. <laughs> doing, doing the best I can. Yeah. I, I think I was at data council at the time trying to talk with all the background noise outside. Right yeah, you now, were. So we were quite Yeah. Just like, <laughs> anyway. Um, well, cool. It's, it's good to chat. I think right before we were uh, talking, and this might be a good um, uh, topic to start with, we were talking about a New York Times article that it came out yesterday. Um, what was this article about? Oh, I, I feel like it was WeWork that kind of made it... Uh, public news enough that, that it made it to the front page of the New York times. But, um, th- there've been a bunch of startup either bankruptcies or, uh, uh you know, one form or another of, of failures. I, uh, I would have to pull up the article to like, remember all the, the company's names. It mentioned WeWork and Convoy and there was a, there was a what was the name of the meeting? The, the uh, like virtual oh, event, Hoppin, yeah, Hoppin. Yeah. Yep, that, that's another like big, big one. Um, do you remember any of the other names? I'm pulling up the article right now, but yeah, Hoppin. I think they said it raised 1.6 billion uh, at a valuation of 7.6 billion, and supposedly sold its main business for 15 million. So now I'm really curious about what went on behind the scenes for all of that to take place. But let's see what else did they have here. Yeah, it's a long list. Um, all of AI basically closed out uh, Convoy, of course, uh, Vive, which is a home construction startup that I mm. hadn't heard of. Mm. Yeah. Um, oh, just looking through it now. Yeah, and it says if you're focused on AI, then of course, <laughs> this, this is not a problem. You're not worried about this. Yeah, it's, you know, the ever since uh, inflation started ticking upwards and, and uh, the Fed started going on its uh, interest rate raising uh, spree, uh, the the markets have reacted and uh, multiples have come down. And that has meant that, um, you know, if the emperor was wearing no clothes, uh, then it became apparent to everybody very quickly because you couldn't continue to fundraise at the levels that you had been fundraising at before. Um, so then you have to either conserve cash or you have to, um, uh, you, you know, you get, get, get profitable or, or, mm-hmm. uh, the, um, we have, uh, you know, a high flying valuation and, um, this has been very top of mind for, for me. Uh, the last thing in the world that I would ever want is to see us in the name, the list of, of names of, of companies who didn't make it through that, that part of the process. But, you know, fortunately, um, in, in, in many ways, enterprise software and, and like data infrastructure is uh, a much more like nuts and bolts business than some of the other companies listed there. Like um, we 
we, you know, we were cast to sign these like long-term leases with landlords that have like these tremendous financial outlays, like uh, uh, obligate you to like 10 plus year terms. And, and um, you know, th there's different, uh, you know, Hopin was, all of their numbers were, were based on uh, a complete global anomaly of, you know, no one could leave their houses and still wanted to do events. And so what do you know, virtual event attendance is like doing real good. And we've seen this show up in, in our own virtual attendance numbers. Mm -hmm. um, two, two years ago, we ran our, our event coalesce uh, uh, totally virtually. And, and the year before that as well. And, and our virtual numbers were like very strong. We were like, Hey, this is the future of conferences. Why would we ever like all go to a hotel together again? But um that that's changed and people want to go in person and um yep. the the virtual numbers are, are not as good. Anyway, I think our core business is like much more boring and normal and stable than some of these these other businesses. So fortunately we could uh, get back to basics and and uh are in a pretty pretty good place. I'm not not worried about showing up on that list. That's great. Well, what does getting back to basics look like for you? Gosh, this is going to turn into a boring conversation very quickly, but um... Perfect. we love boring <laughs> conversations here. We, we spend all our time talking about data. So here we <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, like you, you have uh, uh, a business that started around an open source community and that community grew organically for many, many years. And, um, we, you know, it was, I think three and a half years in that we first raised venture money and, uh, we're now seven and a half years in and the, the story of most commercial open source companies is that the first chunk of revenue comes pretty easily because there's this like pent up demand and, uh, you're like, Hey, you've, there's finally a thing that you can buy and people are like, cool, here's my credit card number. <laughs> and, and so it happens very quickly, but, but then after that, you have to actually get good at repeatedly selling and building the product. And, um, sometimes the early hyper growth actually makes that harder, uh, because, you know, we had to grow the team so quickly and build product so quickly uh, to satisfy that early user demand um, that we oftentimes accomplished in one year what many startups would accomplish in even like very successful startups would accomplish in like two or three years. Um, and, and so there's a lot of just like uh, chaotic movement is that you try to make things happen as quickly as possible. So, you know, the, the short answer to your question is just like focusing on basics is of focusing on things like, um, you know, our, our right now we're focused on a product discovery process. How do we like create this very smooth process for a new PM to say, I want to build a thing and, you know, get, get make that happen. Um, we are focused on things like, um, the, the core economics of our, uh, go to market, you know, uh, what does one sales rep, produce and uh, does that is that economical and how do we tweak these ratios and all this stuff so um if 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 i don't write as many uh analytics engineering roundups as i used to it's because uh, i'm like my headspace is deeply in this this world but like that's how you build a long-term successful business is, is right. you know as much as 
I, I would like to do nothing but talk about um, the, the, the internals of uh, Snowflake and Databricks' most recent product launches. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we also have to like get the basics right. Yeah, and I'm sure you know there is a big shift post-COVID and different pressures running a business. In fact, one of the things you brought up in the email notes uh, before we decided to record today was uh, the shift from being focused on a big user base to growing the revenue base. And I know for like a traditional B2C company like Facebook or Google, this is all about advertising. But of course, if mm -hmm. you're in the like orchestration or data management space, it's a whole different game, right? Advertising is not really going to register there. So tell us a bit about what you were thinking in that context. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It was like a year or two in. Um, and uh, I was, my, my wife is a pediatrician. And um, I, I said, gosh, there's more people using DBT than I anticipated. Uh, like, I don't know what to think about that. And she said, you should put ads in it. And I was like, I'm not sure that's how that works. I'm not sure like ads in a command line tool. So we don't have ads in DBT for sure. Um, <laughs> that would be a weird experience, uh, but. It would be a very strange experience. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the short answer is that there's, when you use DBT, uh, there's a, a core set of things that you're doing and they suggest a kind of next level of stuff. They, if, if you're using DBT, you need something to run it on an ongoing basis. You probably need um, a, a tool to view all the metadata that's coming out of it. Um, you probably need CI checks. You like, there's all these other things. And so the, the core of DBT has always been open source. And we feel strongly about that because um, we want the language itself to be something that uh, you're not locked into. Programming languages generally are not things that you want to um, have somebody be able to kind of change their pricing model. And all of a sudden, all of the, you know, however many tens of thousands of human hours you spent writing that code, it's just like not useful. Um, but all the kind of tooling around it um, is, is stuff that we charge money for. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, this is this has been a pretty common model for a long, long time. It's the tooling around it plus the support aspect, right? So yeah. Linux was one of the first really successful open source businesses. And the attitude was, hey, we're going to keep this pure open source in that case, but we're going to support it for you. And so we'll manage, you know, the different checkpoints for you. And we'll give you like a golden set of bits that's more tested and tried and true. And You're we'll talking about Red Hat? You. Red Hat, for instance, yeah, yeah it's yeah. probably the biggest example of this, yeah. Um, there's, uh, the, the, the cohort of companies that, uh, was started a little bit before us that we tend to think about frequently when we, you know, look for prior art, um, are companies like Databricks and Confluent and Mongo and yep. Elastic. Um, and they all, um, have, have navigated this journey, uh, I think different ones with varying levels of success. Um, and there's certainly been, been bumps along the way for, for different ones. It's been nice for us because we've had those companies to learn from HashiCorp's another one. Um, yep. and I think we've managed to avoid 
stepping into some uh, potholes uh, to, because we've, we've gotten to learn from them. There was this whole relicensing period in like 2018, I think it was, uh, where Elastic and Mongo and Redis. Oh, I remember this. Oh, yeah. like did major relicenses. This is when like the business source license and that. I can't remember that. I think they all like invented their own licenses. Um, but uh, we've decided, all, in almost all cases, we've decided not to go down that path and have kept the, the core product uh, permissive Apache to open source. That's interesting. And I, I suppose, walk, walk me through this. I'm, I'm thinking in terms of moats, whatever that means in, mm. in, a, in a product. but. You know, I imagine that as you're as you're moving more towards, um, you know, focusing on the business, um, focusing on competitive uh, moats. What is, what is, what does a real moat look like in software versus uh, maybe a fake moat or, or a moat that could disappear really quickly? That's something I've been thinking about lately. I'd love your uh, take on that. Uh, this is, I think, this is like the question in software, and uh -huh. um, you know. It, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, the, the question was, could you build something? Um, you know, it was very challenging to build the first versions of eBay or Amazon. And you can like read the histories of these companies. And in order to accept credit card payments online, it was freaking hard computer science work and you like required C code, um, for, for Amazon. Um, but, it's just like the technical challenges are not moats today. I mean, okay, maybe in a few cases they are. Maybe uh, it is, is true that, um, you know, OpenAI has done some things that uh, tr truly are, are technical moats and are hard to replicate. But, but even then, I mean, Google just released uh, Gemini. I can't remember what the Gemini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so like you you just can't rely on technical moats anymore. Um, so the the question is, what what instead do you do? And there the I went to you know real business school back fifteen years ago, and and that was good intro to the topic, but. Honestly, you can you can get up to speed on on this topic just by reading a single book. Um, the, the folks on the Acquired podcast talk about this book every single episode. It's called Seven Powers. Uh, it's by oh, that's, a, that's a really good book. Yeah, Hamilton Helmer. It's not long. It's like I don't know, 180 or 200 pages. Something it's like dense that. though. It's dense. Every page, <laughs> you're just like, damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You do want to like put it down and stop and think about it. Um, mm -hmm. But but like. And I, I'm not going to be able to re recall the seven powers from from the top of my head, but um, the 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 different way that I I think about that I, I think about Apple a lot because um, we're trying to run a playbook that is a little bit similar. Now I I don't want to like truly compare a tiny little four four hundred person company in data engineering to like the largest most successful technology company ever, but like you can see similar strategic elements. And that, that is to say that Apple's strategic moat is primarily about their ecosystem. 
Mm -hmm. They have all these different touch points with customers and they have invested in technology at each of these different touch points. And the power of the Apple ecosystem is such that anytime you adopt a new piece of Apple technology, it just works so freaking well. And so you know, every once in a while, my brother, who's an Android person, uh, will try to convince me to switch over to a Pixel and he'll be like, ah, oh, the new Pixel has this, that, 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 that. I'm like, cool. I literally don't even care what right. new functionality just came out of the Pixel because like, I have three different sets of AirPods. I have two Apple TVs. I have MacBook. Like all of this stuff just works together incredibly well. And that is a very powerful mode. Um, and for us, my perspective on data engineering is that most of the time people are spending their time on things that have no value whatsoever. They are plumbing, they are duct taping. Um, and, and what we really need to be spending time on is thinking about business value. Like what are the things that we're here to do uh, that, that create business value? And so, and, and yet there's like all these different touch points. You think about data engineering, you need, you need a data catalog, you need a CI tool, you need observability, you need all these different freaking things. And you don't really care. I mean, like take the data orchestration, like literally creates no business value, but you need it. If you don't have it, your stuff doesn't run, but you want to think about it as infrequently as possible. And so what I want to do is um, increasingly make living in the dbt ecosystem feel like living in the apple ecosystem which is to mm -hmm. say that the hard stuff just kind of like vanishes into the background and you you forget that that was ever a problem and you spend all your time thinking about business value matt you're writing a book on business value what do you think about this <laughs> yeah yeah i completely agree i mean i data people in general we need to think about business value a lot more um, I think there's frankly also a level of training that needs to happen at the sea level, which is to say we need to sometimes rethink about business value. Um, you have the whole Welchian, you know, just dollars and cents stock buybacks movement. The, the Jack Welch. Yes, Welchian. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I, I recently read a book called The Man Who Broke Capitalism. Good book. Um, probably talk about it more in the future, but basically talking about how he undermined General Electric's investment in R&D, he undermined them as a technology leader. And I think when we're pitching data projects, there kind of need to be new, two parts to it. So we're still pitching technology, right? Like not to your point, Tristan, not focusing on boring engineering stuff. We want to get that stuff out of the way as quickly as possible, but focus on how data can actually build better businesses not just on having the latest and greatest, you know, release of Snowflake or something like that, but focus on how data can serve the core functions of the business, <laughs> but not be so focused on just profits and dollars and cents that we say, oh, we don't want to invest that money because it's, you know, we can just give it back to shareholders instead. Interesting. This interesting thread too, I, I think that we sort of touched on earlier, which was the, um, you know, the early days of uh, technologies like PayPal, right? And, and so forth. These are very high friction efforts, uh, mm -hmm. but now transactions are, you don't even think about it, right? You just integrate it in and you're kind of done, right? Same with PayPal actually does, it works really well. And it, and it feels like the data tooling ecosystem and the data engineering ecosystem is very, it's it's coming a long ways. I don't think we would hearken back to the days of MapReduce um, and going back that direction. Maybe some hipster will want to do that. I don't know. Um, so, but it's, 
<laughs> let's let's actually bring back the old the old school data sacks. But um, but I think you're absolutely uh, right on in your in your, um, your observation that these things just sort of need to work. I, I think you know, and then we like we, we wrote the book on data engineering. Like we we feel like there's the the trend right now is definitely towards higher levels of abstraction um, and ease of use, and this will by uh, proxy. Um, force the data engineer again to focus on uh, more valuable activities, uh, as you point out. Pipelines that should just be there. But I mean, if, you, if the plumbing in your house was uh, as creaky as a lot of our data pipelines, I mean, you would have a very terrible day. I mean, you're in the middle of a remodel project, or hopefully you're soon done with it. But it, just can, just finished, yeah. Congratulations, by the way. Very happy. Is not leaking? I guess the plumbing is all plumbing's doing great. You don't yeah. think about it. Great. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, but I mean, you're absolutely spot on. It, it's it's one of these things where I, I, in my perfect world, we would not be talking about um, data the way we do right now, and we'd be focused on the outcomes uh, that data can provide. And the um, but engineers want to engineer, right? I mean, that's sort, that's sort of the paradox that we live in, where you're gonna. You want to put a command line in front of people so they can type things and feel like they're doing something. And so. and I don't think there's, there's any anything wrong with that. It's the the problem is that um, sometimes we have because ten years ago the only way to build data pipelines was to to employ people to deal with all this hard stuff like to mm -hmm. tune MapReduce. Um, that we we trained businesses to expect that and we trained an entire set of professionals to expect that and and in fact that's not actually a great outcome like that was a problematic outcome that's why we moved towards cloud data warehouses and sql and all this management stuff um but 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 we should we should get our businesses to to um want to do that work less and and professionals to not see it as like their their path to to promotion Yeah. And I, I think, I, I don't know, Joe, what, what do you think about startups? I think some startups have figured this out and realized that they just need to use off the shelf tools and focus on their business outcomes and also focus on like, what's my, do I have a technology secret sauce? Is there something that I'm really, really good at that other people are not good at? Focus on that plus the business value, then they can succeed. And we've seen other startups where people maybe come from Google and they want to bring in all kinds of Google technical processes and they want to be the best at technical processes. And generally, the latter type of startup really, really gets bogged down in the technical details instead of realizing. Well, we saw that one app. company that um, I think had Google engineers as their founding team, and they built a, um, everything using protobufs, like literally everything. And we're just like, I, you could use. I mean, that's that. how Google works. Every, literally right. everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Our suggestion was there's a, there's a, there's a thing called Postgres. You could do that too. And it would save you a lot of time. And, and JSON, but, right? Like just use yeah. off the shelf, use what other people are using. Yes, it might cost you a bit more money, but it's going to save a ton of engineering time. Mm -hmm. And then when you're when you're a big company, when you grow up, you can focus on being the best technically maybe. But right now, this is maybe not the best use of your time. How do you make that leap though, Tristan, from, um, you know, being a, a um, from where you are now to, to, to building an ecosystem that, you know, just sort of just works. Yeah. Okay. So this is, I think this is one of the most interesting things about the, the data ecosystem today. So you were talking about, we were, you know, we've been talking about the early days of the internet and yeah. uh, early technology companies. And one of the things that happened in the nineties 
is that there's a lot of innovation in open standards, open protocols. And because these, uh, th there was kind of nothing at all. And then SMTP came out and everyone's like, oh, that works, great, I'll use that. And then you, you saw like, you know, SMTP go from nothing to it was everywhere. Um, and, and the same thing happened for, you know, a, a small set of other protocols in the, you know, late eighties, nineties. And, um, these protocols are generally like pretty simple, straightforward, but they, they did an important thing and they got adoption and that, that kind of hasn't happened in data in the same way. Mm. And the, so the shape of the shape of the data ecosystem is, is often constrained by the set of companies who are innovating in that space and their respective incentives. And for a very long time, basically all the companies in data were enterprise software companies that sold tops down. And so they, they built software to um, satisfy RFP processes that had a lot of checklists that you needed to satisfy. And, and uh, then you look at the, the software that was created as a part of that and it did a lot of stuff, but it was pretty clunky and people didn't love using it. And um, so the, the, from my perspective, the, the most interesting thing about DBT, and you could, you talk about a lot of different things, but, but the most interesting thing about where we sit in the overall landscape is that we are really the only kind of application level open standard that has gotten real traction. And um, in order to actually make a change in the world, you need to convince a very large number of people to do something in a new way. Mm -hmm. And that, that's literally the hardest problem in making any change to the world. A large number of people convince them to do something in a new way. And um, so we have uh, certainly, like, it, it's hard to tell exactly how many people use DBT today. There's, from what we can tell, there's about 35,000 companies that use DBT every week. And, and probably you're talking about somewhere like half a million or a million users uh, every week. And, um, and so that's not, you know, everyone, but it's a lot of people and from a data engineering Part, part of the world and mm -hmm. uh, we, we want to like move that into kind of uh, you know less technical folks over the coming you know 12 plus yeah. months and and so then you start to say like well what does that give us the right to do and uh, that's the moment in time that we sit at and, and I think it's a real, really big opportunity because instead of, so we just launched this thing called DBT Explorer. And okay, you look at DBT Explorer and you compare it to a, a fully featured data catalog like Annihilation or a Calibra. And I mean, gosh, it, it it's like David and Goliath. Like we, our product is kind of a toy. Um, 
but it does a lot of the things, the, the basic things that you want. Mm -hmm. And it is automatically in the hands of everybody who is in the DBT ecosystem. And that's really powerful. And so we, we want to continue to do that. We're not going to try to, you know, build the most complex, you know, best in class orchestration tool or best in class observer. But, but like uh, when you have a huge user group and you can say like, Hey, here's a really useful thing. And it works with all these other things. Then you get to kind of raise the bar on like just the set of tooling that everyone has access to. Let, let me ask you about something that I don't think DBT is working on, but it's very adjacent mm -hmm. and probably very important to you for this reason, because it's part of this ecosystem. And that is data exchange. So if I as a company have, you know, processed some data, transformed it, I'm ready to serve it. And I want to exchange it with a partner or the customers. Um, what's, what's your, what are your thoughts on the state of the ecosystem around that right now? And how could we do better? Mm-hmm. This is not a world that I spend a lot of time thinking about. What, it, uh, I'm happy to like talk about it, but but Matt, what's uh, what has this top of mind for you? Um, I, I think a lot of things. What we've seen over and over again. So I, I think it's really nice that Snowflake makes it easier to exchange data between companies. The the crux is still that if my say a business part a partner company is on BigQuery instead or using Redshift, then suddenly that's very yeah. hard. And so I'm kind of thinking in the context of open standards, like you're talking about, and how we're still you know after all these years we've gone to the cloud, but this is still a point of struggle. I feel like for a lot of companies. Yeah, the um, one of the things that we're thinking about internally is um, we we launched this thing called dbt mesh in yep. at coalesce and uh companies like large large companies that use dbt really want to be able to kind of distribute ownership of their their different dbt assets and and many of these companies have investments in multiple different data platforms and it becomes very their like data ecosystems become very bifurcated yep. and um the, the, but the funny thing is, that's a software problem. It's not a, you know, Adam's problem. Um, it, let's just say, in an example, you you're running, um, you, you're on AWS and you're running Athena and you're also running uh, Snowflake. Well, it turns out that most likely both Athena and Snowflake are software running on inside the same set of computers inside of AWS in the same region and they all could communicate using uh blob store and you know s3 and it's uh like actually data interchange between these platforms could be much much easier it's a, so it's a software problem that could be solved um so one of the things that we're starting to think about is how do you take this mesh concept and make it really easy for different teams that are both using dbt to rewrite each other's data even if they're on different data platforms and how do we kind of make that, that movement kind of seamless. Um, and I think it's honestly not, not going to be that big of a lift to, for us to accomplish that. Now, I don't know how to use DBT as a standard to kind of solve the problem of like the, the atoms problem. Like if your data is sitting on us West, 
uh, over here and, and other data is sitting on, you know, uh, uh, region in Germany, like I, that, that's, that requires somebody else to, to solve. Oh, and there's the whole data egress problem too, the way Vendor's bill for network, yeah. which yeah, Joe, you like to rant about that, I think for good reason. Well, it reminds me of cell phone minutes from the nineties. I kind of wish they would go away, but I, I keep thinking this will happen. It probably won't for a while. So, but once one vendor decides to do it, I think everyone else is going to follow suit pretty quick, but um, yeah. It's a topic for another day. I it mean, it's really crazy. That, like, I, I just was at Slush last week, and uh, I called. You know, every day I would call my my kids and my wife and and check in and say hi. And it like doesn't even register to me anymore that like I can have traveled seven time zones away, and I can just like go to my phone and like click the same name, and it just connects me. And I. Like the world of long distance is way behind us. And it's a super cool analogy for egress fees. It reminds me a lot of that. Yeah, it's just a toll. Um, and even egress fees between regions and stuff like this, it's just not so different ways you can get to get charged and, and uh, whatnot. It's, um, but I mean, that's that's one big barrier. But you know, what, what you're describing kind of reminds me of the, uh, if we take it to the Apple analogy, sort of like the, uh, Sort of iCloud works, or maybe how uh, actually uh, you have three AirPods. Uh, I I think I have the same number, and how Handoff works. You know, I have a million Apple uh, devices, right? And they just it, that's it, gotten way it, better. Two years most, ago, it was a real pain in the ass. It sucked. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was yep. so bad. Like now, it's pretty good. Now yeah. it's pretty good. Yeah, you'd be like talking to someone on your phone, and then your AirPods would randomly reconnect with your Mac when you opened it to like work on a. Oh yeah, that was yes. us all the time. We'd yes. be talking, yeah. and then they, like your phone would be in your pocket, and now the person's voice is actually like coming out of speaker in your pocket. Yeah, that's exactly it. But what, what you're describing with DBT mesh kind of reminds me of that um, that um, experience where it just sort of should seamlessly work, right? I think they they dialed it in as you pointed out, and it, it's. Um, but this is one of the big cruxes too, because a lot of there's a lot of complexity, um, especially as you get the bigger companies. <laughs> that just you know, it, it's just the nature of the topology of how the the, the teams and you know their stakeholders are set up. So it's it's um, it, it's interesting. What 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 sort of spawned the idea behind a, a DBT mesh? Oh, uh, it, it's it's the same idea that kind of started the whole thing off, which is just um, most problems in data uh, can be solved by analogizing to software engineering. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the problem that we, everybody was running into last year, and it ignited quite a lot of um, LinkedIn commentary and uh, conspiracy theories and uh, you know, whatnot is that, um, you know, the modern data stack was expensive and, uh, you know, nobody had really good control over what was running inside their, their data warehouse. And uh, DBT was expensive because people were writing a bunch of code and no one knew what was happening. And, uh, and, and you, the, the core insight was in fact, correct. It, you know, you, DBT projects, um, or, or authors of DBT projects didn't have the tools that they needed to like create really robust software architecture. And as a result, the answer anytime you needed something new done in your DBT project was just like, okay, go in there and 
build a new model, build 10 new models. Like, and um, it was too hard to refactor what existed. It was too hard to like create modularity at scale. And um, like anytime you run into a problem and we've been doing this for almost eight years now, um, the answer isn't like throw out the baby with the bathwater. The, the answer is like, okay, cool. Like what we've got a system right now, it's working in a lot of ways and there's some pathologies that it displays. Uh, what is the missing concept that we don't, don't have? And uh, for us, the missing concept was um, we needed DBT projects to map more, uh, more similarly to microservices that were maintained mm -hmm. by, you know, kind of two pizza teams. And, you know, the, Software engineers have tried the, uh, you know, let's have 2,000 people all maintain one code base together uh, thing before, and that doesn't really work. And um, so there's there's two decades worth of, you know, software architecture uh, thinking on, on how to do this well. And, and we certainly borrowed only the most high-level concepts from it, and probably there's, mm -hmm. there's more learning to do there, but um, we, we needed to help people get out of this world where you know the, the only answer on how to like do a new thing was make new models and mm -hmm. schedule them to run along with everything else yeah that was part of the conversation we had and um the other podcast that you and i did uh tristan which was uh, i think the big uh topic on your mind was just the the amount of complexity and, and the amount of complexity sprawl i think more to the point, right? Where I think you had one company that had like 38,000 DBT models or maybe more than that, actually. Um, yes, yes. Just, just bananas. <laughs> so, Well, it really sounds like we're talking about don't repeat yourself, right? Like one of the ultimate classic rules in software development for probably the last 30 years when was don't repeat yourself first coin. But yeah, it seems like there was a lot of repetition in DBT models. And so this is a very welcome change. Well, the funny thing is, it's not like anybody wants to repeat themselves. But in, in a sufficiently complex organization, uh, it's just, it's hard to know, okay, this model was built by this other human that I've never spoken to before. Uh, why did they build it this way? Uh, if I change it, will they be pissed off at me? Um, if I change it, will I break something? Uh, yeah. it's, these are kind of hard questions to know the answer to. And almost always, it is faster in the moment for that person to just like make a new model instead of make a small change to the other model. And, and so that's what people end up doing. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to make it easier to do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think semantic layers fit into um, maybe universalizing uh, the vocabulary and, and context of, of a data within an organization? Uh, I think that, I think that we are currently going through, uh, what will probably be a fairly short process as an industry of figuring out what's the best interface to feed context into a large language model that allows it to then, um, be in dialogue with me about what's going on inside my company. And I think semantic layers, we've, we've done uh, some, some research recently and others in the 
in the space have as well. Um, semantic layers significantly outperform uh, just providing context via like raw schemas, uh, yep. like database schemas. Um, when when you want to feed them into uh, the context window of a of an LLM, and so you they they become kind of the the universal map to understand what's what's in your data landscape, and then you ask a question of an LLM, and it uses the semantic layer context to form a well formed semantic layer uh, request. It then gets uh, deterministically correct answers from the database, mm -hmm. as opposed to probabilistically correct answers like everything else in LLM world. Um, and and that's I, you know, I don't know whether it's going to take over the world in the next six months, but um, I have a very hard time imagining that the way we thought about BI two years ago was going to be the same way that we think about BI in five years. Because right. wouldn't you, wouldn't you just prefer to ask a question and get an answer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of my time is spent talking to founders of companies. Actually, I had to put a kibosh on this earlier earlier this week, but because um, everyone wants to show their uh, latest LLM uh, BI tool, right? Just now you can talk to your data. I'm like, yeah, but that's like the hundred other uh, companies I just talked to earlier. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah I've got a couple of investments in that space, and then the, but the the company creation process just keeps churning out that that company. Uh, yeah, that company. Yeah, <laughs> like I put it. Um, yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, you sent an article over um, about some research that was done uh, by actually our mutual friend, uh, Juan Cicada, um, uh, Knowledge Graphs and um, uh, SQL. And I actually caught his talk at the Alan Turing um, Institute uh, over in London. Um, I was there a few months ago and it was fascinating. Uh, he's he's one of the people I think is leading the charge with Knowledge Graphs. I mean, he, the, the, the sad thing is he's been leading this charge and he, it kind of felt like he was this uh, the lone man shouting at the sky for a while about knowledge graphs and, and semantic layers. And now it's, uh, I think he's um, having his, his uh, you know, finally time in the time in the, um, in the sun here, but it, it is fascinating, but the, the proofs in what he just researched, and I think they just, uh, Data World just um, wrote or launched a paper on that, but um, overwhelmingly, yes, the, uh, the graphs and, and semantics layers do help uh, with the hallucination problem. Doesn't completely solve it, but it's, it's getting a lot better. So, yeah. 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 And in general, what we're seeing on the semantic layer front is um, like really accelerating interest from real companies. Um, mm. So we started talking about this two years ago. And two years ago, you had kind of data Twitter and early adopters interested. And it, it was very much from the perspective of like, huh, that's a very cool idea, and I can see why that could be powerful. Maybe I'll play around with it. Um, but it turns out that like many folks in the like thought leadership community actually work at these like uh, startups that have much, they, like they have greenfield data stacks. Things kind of work, mm -hmm. um, and and so semantic layers are actually a little bit less valuable when everything's kind of clean and well organized. Um, but they're extremely valuable when uh, your data stack is uh, heterogeneous. There's a lot of things going on in different places. It's, it can be this very effective layer to kind of put on top of everything and kind of control the chaos. Um, but so now we've seen the evolution towards 
you know, it is, uh, it's not, uh, you know, early adopters who are knocking on our door. It's, it's people who run uh, real organizations that, that mm -hmm. suffer from these kinds of problems. And they're like, let's, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's interesting. I was talking to, uh, with, uh, um, Sol Rashidi, um, it's a good friend of mine, but she was the uh, chief data officer at, um, a lot of big companies like that. And I think she, semantic layers is one of those things that's top of mind for her too, because, mm. um, yeah, you, you guys should probably chat at some point, but it, it's the, uh, cause it's just, it's sort of the glue that's going to hold everything together. And for some reason we haven't had this for some reason, which is why, um, as you point out, there's a lot of complexity and just how we interact with data, how different departments, Kind of silo things off and you know so that's interesting what are what are when, the, when these companies talk to you these these, these uh, real companies uh talk to you about semantic layers like what's what's the conversation typically like oh geez it's um we're learning a lot about the the different like minimum viable feature checklists that mm. different types of organizations have you know it's the it's the kind of early days of any product where um, the things that are showing up for us right now are like, do you support our main BI tool? Okay, cool. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Um, Power BI is one of the biggest asks we get in this part of the world and we, like, we're like getting to work on that. Um, the second thing is um, caching. What does your caching solution look like right now so that we can blow out our costs? Um, and that's a thing that's like in a very near-term roadmap. And the third thing is um, permissioning. Uh, what is the permission model that you use to interact with the database? Um, and is our security team cool with that? Um, so the, those are like where, you know, you get, it's pretty easy to get people bought into the, the, uh, pain point and the the solution that that that's actually like quite straightforward um and oftentimes it's actually easier to get people to understand that than understand like why dbt in the first place mm. um people really understand the semantic layer problem sometimes people on dbt they're just like yeah i don't know we like write stored procedures or we have some PySpark or whatever and like, why is this better? And that becomes a challenging conversation for anybody who hasn't used the thing. Um, but the semantic layer, people just like really get it. Um, and then it becomes a conversation about like, okay, can we use the version of the thing that exists today? Or should we talk again in a couple months? I mean, to follow on, what, what do you think things will look like in a year? Like, where do you, where do you think DBT will be a year from now? Uh, and how will that interact with LLMs? Let me ask that too, just to throw oh, in the buzzwords. <laughs> uh, this is a year for us where we're, um, we are not trying to plant any massive new tent poles. We're not trying to launch some like brand new thing that you haven't seen before. Um, what, what we are trying to do is uh, create a lot of new experiences inside of existing products. Um, here's, here's the thing, uh, here's an example. Um, we have three CI checks on our main internal analytics project and dbt cloud supports one of them 
And the other two we roll via GitHub Actions. One is, uh, I think one is uh, SQL Fluff and the other one's like DBT Project Evaluator or some, something like that. And um, I recently, you know, did some work to meshify our internal analytics project and, and um, as a part of that, I created a new project and I had to set up CI for that. And it was a real pain. I had never used GitHub Actions before. There was a lot of config stuff that I had to learn. Like that should just be check, check, check. Like, yes, I want to check using SQL fluff. Uh, yes, I want to use the project evaluator to, you know, uh, and, and um, so th there's a million things like that, uh, that, that like within the existing product surface area, we need to like be filling things out and it'll just uh, make people uh, who are, already using the thing, like just deliriously happy because every, everything gets easier. Um, on LLM specifically, I think that there's um, there's real opportunities for, for code gen. Um, and, and we have people working on that like right now. Um, there's, uh, there's a bunch of discrete workflows. There's the like, write me a new model based on this prompt workflow. Um, there's the uh, this code gave me this error, fix it for me workflow. Um, there's the, um, I just wrote this model. Can you write all the YAML config needed to like test it and et cetera. Um, and, and I think that all of those are like very achievable experiences that don't require, um, massive technical innovations today. They just require like, applying existing technology to the problem. Mm -hmm. well, that's really cool. I, I'm hearing a lot about these types of applications. And to me, six months ago, it felt like these were things that we were putting into uh, into web apps that weren't quite ready for prime time. It was kind of like, I want to raise more venture money, so I'm going to put some kind of LLM-based thing yeah, into my yeah. product. But now it feels like they're actually being used. I mean, I, I heard a couple of talks um, at Data Driven NYC actually earlier this week and there was a discussion with Adobe about the maturity of their Firefly, a kind of suite of tools for for generating images, which was kind of amazing. And then there was a panel from Moody's Analytics talking about how they're using uh, retrieval augmented generation to power internal analytics and just like really, really exciting stuff. So looking forward to seeing what you guys do with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, honestly, I feel like the there was some kind of weird expectation that companies would have this stuff in their products within like six months of the LLMs being shown to be like widely working. Um, and I don't know, I, I just didn't feel that type. I, I had no interest in like launching an LLM feature that wasn't useful. Right. Um, so I think that there's now enough prior art um, we've now collected enough user feel like we do we haven't know how to do this thing in a way that like is actually going to be useful. And so it's, it's the right time. That's super cool. Um, I know we're coming up at the uh, top of the hour here. Um, well, Tristan, it's been good, good chatting with you. And I, um, um, maybe one last question that I, I have before we kind of wrap up, um, how hands on are you, uh, with, with, uh, getting your hands dirty with the code base? I mean, you mentioned that you're uh, doing GitHub actions and stuff. I was a bit, uh, a bit surprised by that. Um, but is this, is this something you, you normally do? Uh, it seems kind of cool. Um, 
Yeah, I haven't been able to for a little while, but um, I recently hired a president COO um, and his name's Brandon. He came from HashiCorp uh, and he's, he's uh, been a, a delight to work with. And uh, Brandon now is responsible for the entire go-to-market part of our business from um, sales to, to partnerships to uh, marketing and field engineering, like the, the uh, all the customer facing revenue generating part of the business. And um, one of my, the, the reasons that I wanted to hire Brandon, other than the fact that he's way better at that stuff than I am, um, is that it gives me an opportunity to focus on the stuff that I'm actually really good at, which is um, making sure that I have hands-on product time um, mm. you know, every month. And so cool. I, I took a couple full days after Coalesce and um, used all the new product functionality we just shipped. That's awesome. Um, and I, I plan on doing that every, every couple months. That's super cool. It, it, it's, it's, I'd say it's kind of unheard of too, Matt. I, I, we talked to a lot of people. It's, it seems like the, the um, bigger the company gets, the, the, the founders kind of disconnected from the product. But I, it's, that's really cool. Cause I think that, and Matt will agree. This is something I think that it would, should matter. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I've heard many, many people talk about when they move into management, even if you're just managing a whole team or a department, suddenly you, you lose some of that individual contributor time. And that's kind of very wrenching to do that. Um, but I think sometimes people take it too far and say, okay, I'm the manager now. I'm not going to do any, I'm not going to get into the product at all. I'm just going to ask my team about the features and I'll tell them what features we should have and then manage the tickets and such. And I think that's kind of a shame because you really, to have the product vision, you want to be getting your hands dirty. You know, you want to be right in the middle of things. Um, I mean, that was Steve Jobs was famous for that. Maybe not on the technical level that you're talking about, but like actually interacting with the products and making sure that you like the experience and he felt like users. Would well, with maniacal products. detail too. Yeah, absolutely. Like, this, like this, this corner feels off, like go back and do it again. So it, I, I think that there's different stages in a, in a startup's life cycle. I think that at first you're in the product all the time because you have to be. And then there's a million things that you have to do to make sure that the company like actually comes into existence, actually works. And you, you know, as CEO, you probably need to trust that there's other people who can do a lot of the, the uh, product and engineering work. Um, but then you kind of come through that and you can start hiring leaders and trusting those leaders. And then, but you have to start asking your, yourself the question, what is it that I'm uniquely capable of? What do I, right. where, where do I add value here? And um, I, I spent a lot of time with folks like Ali Goetze at Databricks and Jay Krebs right. at Confluent. And, and those folks have very clear statements of like, here's why I am the CEO of this company right now. Here's the value I add. And, and so um, I think that every CEO needs to, to develop a, a statement on that at, at some point. That's awesome. Well, Tristan, uh, great chatting with you, and um, yeah, looking forward to what you are um, coming up with uh, you know, next year and the many years after. So, awesome! Yeah, I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for taking you. the time to come on. Yeah, all right. Talk to you soon, man. Take care. See you. Bye.